Oh, James chapter 5. We're going to finish our study in the book of James this morning. So, uh, 16, 16 weeks in, we'll finish. It's page 1389 on that Pew Bible in front of you if you don't have a copy of God's Word, so you can follow along. And last week, we looked at this text, realizing that as James pulls everything together, he has quite a lot he wants us to see, and knowing that we were going to spend some time with the preschoolers this morning, we had a preliminary discussion about the mindset that it takes to approach this final section rightly. And we talked about embracing weakness and being dependent and having that heart posture as we come to the end of James. So now this morning we'll look again at this final passage and sort of take it apart and be able to see specifically what God may be saying to each of us. All right, let's pray for God to give us ears to hear this morning that we might receive His Word with joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We bow humbly before Your inerrant, perfect gift that You've given us. This passage, with all of Your passages, Lord, is relevant and pertinent to our lives in this moment and time. And we pray that this morning You might give us ears to hear that we would receive with joy this good word, that it may do its perfect work in us and that we may glorify you. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So the book of James is countering error. I've said this a couple times over the course of this series that James has more imperatives than any other book in the Bible. Uh, especially when you look at the, the length of James and the number of imperatives, uh, there's no other section of the Bible even close to this amount of commands. He's very direct. He's very specific. He wants us to know exactly what it is that we need to know. And this error that James is confronting is this, this idea that it's possible to be genuinely reconciled to God or converted to Christ and then uh, for that to be non-evident in the way that you live. Sort of uh, this idea that a person can be a Christian based on profession alone. James would say that is absurd. The Bible would say that is absurd. So with that in mind, it should make perfect sense that James would finish his letter with these words, beginning in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah 
was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produces its fruit. And we'll stop there, and then we'll finish the end at the end of this morning. Let's look at verse 13, and I want you to see how James is getting our mind around when it is we should pray. Okay? Notice, the, notice what he says in verse 13. He uses these extremes. Is anyone sick? And then he says, is anyone cheerful? And we do this all the time. We would say, God's with us in the valleys and God's with us in the mountaintops. And when we say that, what do we mean? We mean that God's with us at our lowest points and our highest points. And what's inferred is that he's with us everywhere in between. If he's with us at the high point and he's with us at the low point, he's with us everywhere in between. James is doing the exact same thing. James is saying that we should pray when we're suffering and we should pray when we're rejoicing, meaning that we should pray at every time in between. Exactly. That every situation, every circumstance in our life is an opportunity for us to pray. Now, if you have your listening guide, your first blanks are how I pray reveals how I view God. How I pray review, re, reveals how I view God. You see, your prayer life evidences your theology. We have said multiple times that, and of course, we're talking about prayer on Wednesday nights, and we've said it in that context, that when a person prays, when I hear a person pray, I can tell a lot about them. I can tell a lot about their theology. I can pray a lot about I can tell a lot about what they believe to be true about God. You see, the the Psalms provide a variety of images uh, for us to see God, for example. The, the Psalms will refer to God as a shepherd or a strong tower or Almighty God or in multitudes of ways. Now, why are there so many different sort of ways to refer to God or names for God as it may be? Well, it's reminding us of who God is and how God can meet us in every situation and circumstance. You see, sometimes we're in a situation in our life where we need God to be our strong tower. Sometimes we're in a situation where we need God to be our shepherd, and so on and so forth. And so the Bible is simply telling us the reality that God can be for us what we need Him to be in the moments that we find and encouraging us to turn to Him in our times of struggle. Now, maybe we should ask this question. Uh, when I pray, what do I pray about? What, what primarily dominates my prayers? Are much of our prayers focused on the strength and the 
spiritual power we need to accomplish the will of God in our lives, to be obedient to the things that God's called us to do? Or are the majority of our prayers focused on our physical needs? You see, what happens is, is that if we're not careful, we'll begin to pray and reveal that our theology is more towards believing that God is a genie in a Bible, in a bottle, or in the Bible. And that we come to God only when we need something from God. And that would be sort of a genie theology, if you will. You see, whenever a conversation about prayer comes up, people start to experience a little bit of anxiety, and it's usually relegated to one of two places. Either, first of all, it's fear and anxiety sensing that someone may ask you to pray in a small group or in a public setting, and that makes people anxious, or anxiety over the infrequency of your prayer life. Sort of you realize that this is an area of your life where you're deficient, and so therefore you feel uncomfortable, and so a conversation about prayer makes you feel anxious. Well, what, what God wants us to understand about Him is that He's not a genie in a bottle. He's a God who desires for us to come to Him in all the situations and circumstances of our life. You see, our prayer, our prayer life shouldn't be, it shouldn't consist of the American dream with a little bit of Jesus mixed in. That's not what prayer is for. God wants us to come to Him no matter what's going on in our lives, whether it's good or whether it's bad, which is what James is encouraging. Now remember, this is Pastor James encouraging people who are facing great suffering, who have been dispersed out of their homeland. They've been displaced. Their lives are in total uh, chaotic disarray. And he wants them to understand the importance of prayer. His parting words are centered around prayer and the reality that prayer is for all times. You see, joy is an opportunity for us to see God as the source of all real pleasure. Hardship is an opportunity for us to see God as the source of all comfort. But what about the mundane things of life? What about the in-between things? They're an opportunity for us to see God as sustainer. You see, in other words, consider, for example, right now as you sit and you listen, there, there's, there are many ways that God's blessing you that we fail to realize. For example, as you breathe in and breathe out, it's God that's giving you that breath. You see? And so we always have opportunity to be grateful, to be thankful, whether it's good times, whether it's hard times, or whether it's just the mundane things. That's why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians that we're to pray without ceasing, because all things are an opportunity to pray. Now, the next verse, verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. 
I always wonder, every time I read that verse, I wonder, in so many churches, when they read that verse, what do they say? Because they don't have elders. So they make up something and say, well, that's, that word is just a synonym for uh, the pastor, but here's the problem. It is a word that can be interchanged with the word pastor, but it is plural. And it is specifically referring to the elders of the church, which every church in a New Testament era should have elders, just like you have elders. So let's think about what this verse is saying, because here's a great opportunity for you to get into some real error if you're not careful. First of all, I want you to notice the person who is calling for the elders. It's not the elders calling for them. It's them calling for the elders. And they're calling to the elders. The, the, what, what this is telling us, in other words, if you look at this in context and you look at the words used here, you would see that he's calling the elders to come to him or her. He's asking them to come to them. He's not going there or she's not going there. Why? Well, I'm assuming because they're too sick. And so then the elders are to go come to this person and to pray over this person. Why are they praying over this person? Because they're too sick to get up. They're sick. You see? Now, there's so many ways that this verse has caused so many problems and so many uh, weird and strange sort of interpretations of Scripture and even led to many of the practices found in cults. So let me just make sure that I straighten a few things out. First of all, this is not in any way, shape, or form uh, encouraging you to refuse medical help, as some might claim that it is. Please do not say that I'm not going to take my medicine, I'm just going to pray. That's not being super spiritual, that's being super dumb. You see, maybe God's means to heal you is through medicine. Medicine is not always the answer, but it's not never the answer either. You see, medicine is not a replacement for God, but medicine is a gift from God when properly used. Okay, so this verse is, doesn't have anything to do with that. And how do I know that? Well, because let's talk about, it says to, that the elders are going to anoint their head with oil. So what is the purpose of this oil? What is this oil? Is this oil medicinal? Is this some kind of healing oil? I have oil in my office to anoint someone's head and pray for them. Is it special? Does it have healing power? Now listen, do you think that what this verse is saying is that this is medicinal oil, so if you're sick, you lay there and suffer waiting on me or one of the other elders to show up at your house with the medicine that you need? No, 
No, this is not medicinal. Then there are those that have twisted this around and made this sacramental. They would call. When someone's sick, gravely sick, they would call a leader of the church to come and anoint them and sort of prepare them for death. Is that the context of this verse? No. And how do we know that's not the context? Because what are we, the whole passage is about praying for what? Healing. So I'm not going to show up and anoint your head to die. Right? Okay, so what is, the, what is this oil? It's not medicinal. It's not sacramental. It is symbolic. Yes, it's clearly symbolic. And oftentimes in the Scripture, oil would be seen as uh, this would be an act of consecration, setting someone or something apart for a special purpose. So the elders come to this sick person and pray over this sick person. What is the Bible trying to teach us? Well, here's what I want you to see. The elders represent the church coming to someone who cannot come to the church. The elders are a representation of a praying body of people. That's what's going on here. Because the person is a part of the people, and the person can't get to the people, so a representative of the people goes to the person. Got that? Okay. Now, there's still some other questions. I'll answer those in a minute when I get there. Let's go on to verse 15, then we'll come back and straighten out a couple other things. Verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now, whoo, that sounds good, doesn't it? So evidently, elders have power in their prayers that other people don't have. What do you think? All right, think about it for a minute. Okay, now, if, if someone prays for someone who's sick and they don't get better, is it because they lack faith? How do we know? Well, because we have instances where people have prayed in faith. In other words, when Paul prayed that God would remove the thorn from his flesh and God didn't, was it because Paul lacked faith? No, it was not. So, it appears that what verse 15 is saying that this person is always going to get healed or their prayer the prayer of faith is always going to be answered so let me ask this question is the prayer of faith always going to be answered by God and the que- and the answer is yes yes the prayer of faith is always going to be answered by God however he may not heal on your timeline 
See, he may not heal according to your prescription. But a prayer of faith will always ultimately end in healing. Ultimately. Yes. Now in the physical realm, in this life, maybe there's a reason that God is allowing you to continue in your suffering. Just like Paul. And God explains to Paul that the reason he's not going to remove this suffering from Paul's life is that he wouldn't be exalted above measure, that, he wouldn't, that, that it would keep him humble, that it would keep him, what's the word? Dependent. Yes. You, you see, when there's a principle exhibited in Scripture, then there's a principle exhibited throughout Scripture because Scripture is consistent. And so you'll, you'll see that. See, God has reasons for doing things that we don't understand. And why is that? Because He's God and we're not. So when we suffer, what should we do? What should we understand? Well, we should understand always that our ultimate comfort should not be in God's healing. Our ultimate comfort should be in God's presence with us. So what we said last week was this. Weakness is the key to dependence, and dependence is the key to experiencing the power of God in our troubles. This is the point that all of this is going to make this morning. Is that what we started talking about last week is this is the point. This is why oftentimes here would, here would be our, our subconscious understanding. For most of us in this room, this is what we would think. If I asked you, hey, tell me your story. What's your testimony? When did you get saved? You'd start telling me a story. And the story would go something like something, 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 something. And then I was, you know, really bad, really this, really that. And then God would come into the narrative. And God saved you. And it was this amazing moment where you experienced the power of God in your life. Or as you look back upon it, you see where everything from that point forward has changed or shifted or how you're different. And so the rest of your testimony would be about the, the evidence or influence of God in your life through salvation. And so what we do is we think, we think, boy, that when I got saved, you know, we really experienced the power of God in a very special way, unlike later on. So since salvation, have you experienced God? Have you experienced God powerfully like you did in salvation? And most people would say no. And here's why: because they think that when they went from lost to saved, it was like extra power to get you from lost to saved. And then after that, you know, it's it's a diminished power. That's what we think. Let me answer the riddle for you. Do you know why 
you experienced God in such a powerful way in the moment of your conversion is because in the moment of your conversion, you were very aware of your weakness. People who experience the power of God on a regular basis in their life are people who are weak. That's the key. That's what all, look at verse 16. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. This is a unique place in Scripture where we are commanded to confess our sins to one another. Yikes! So how you doing on that? And, and here's, a, here's the question. Where are you doing this? In other words, let's, let's do a little experiment. I'm, I'm not going to tell you who to confess your sins to, but I'm going to give you a choice, and then you choose, okay? All right. I'm going to count to three, and then you do it, all right? Now, here's your choice. The person on your left or the person on your right? One, two, three, go. Awkward. No one went. What happened? And some of you are thinking to yourself, ooh, well, here's the thing. Now, some of you are sitting next to your spouse, and they're like, there ain't nothing for you to confess. I already know it all. <laughs> but it would be helpful if you'd go ahead and verbalize it, admit it, at least that it's true, right? Where are you going to do this? What's the context for this to happen? This is why it's so vital for you to be in community, deep biblical community. This is why from this large room we move to smaller rooms, and from the smaller room we move to D groups. It's very important that you have different levels of community in your life so that there are people in your life so that this can take place. Because you're not going to do that in this context. But you need to have a context in which to do it. Now, why is this so important? Well, predominantly for this reason right here. There will never be victory over hidden sin as long as sin is hidden. And so if this is true, which it absolutely is, then we better confess sin to one another. See, the Bible says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, look at this verse. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ His Son cleanses us from all our sin. What is walking in the light? It's not walking in the darkness right? It's bringing things out of the darkness into the light. And what does that create? Fellowship, forgiveness. You see the connection of all these things? We're bringing that which is in the darkness out into the light. 
Don't forsake deep biblical community. Christianity, according to the Bible, does not work. It cannot work in isolation. That's not the way God designed it to be. Now, back to my question. Do elders have special power in their prayers? Is my prayer more powerful than your prayer? Is Wade's prayer more powerful than your prayer? And if me and Wade pray for you, and Frank pray for you, is that more powerful than if your spouse prays for you or someone in your D group prays for you? We, we need to know the answer to this. Okay, look at verse 17, and there's your answer. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain in the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produces fruit. I wonder why this is here. Now, if this text was teaching that elders have special power in their prayer, would James have said anything about Elijah? Would he have said that Elijah has a nature just like the elders? That's not what he said. It's just like yours. So clearly this verse is not saying that elders have special power because the point that he uses to make this whole thing evident is that Elijah was just a Normal person like me and you. We're all the same. So now, what, what, is, what is the correlation here? What do, what do we need to understand about this? Because Elijah prayed that it wouldn't rain. So does that mean if you pray that it won't rain, it won't rain? And if you pray and it, that it won't rain and it does rain, does that mean that you don't have faith? Or you're not like Elijah? Or, I mean, what does this all mean? Well, it's... Not that complicated. If you look at 1 Kings chapter 17, 1 Kings chapter 18, the story of Elijah, when he prays, it's very clear how this goes down. Does Elijah wake up one morning and say, you know what I think I'm going to do? I think I'm going to go to the king, and I think I'm going to tell him, hmm, I know that it won't rain. Is that how that goes? Does Elijah just go and pray a random prayer? No. Elijah prays a very specific prayer. And where did Elijah get the very specific prayer? From the Word of God. The Word of the Lord came to Elijah and said, Go to King Ahab and tell him this and this and this. And then in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah again and said, Go to the king and tell him this and this and this. And he went to the king and he prayed this and this and this. And that's what happened. So what Elijah did was he prayed a prayer of faith according to the word of God. And what James is trying to get to here is that it's not that there's some special power in the prayers of the elders. It's that there's special power in the connection between prayer to God and the Word of God. 
when you have prayer to God and the Word of God and you bring them together, that's where power comes into play. Now you're starting to see how all of this is coming together. So when the Bible says that the prayer of a righteous man avails much, is it saying, well, because only the elders are righteous? No. The point of all this is that is that a righteous person's prayer avails much. Why? Because a righteous person is right with God, meaning that their prayer is in agreement with the Word of God and the will of God. You see? What makes a righteous man righteous is that he wants what God wants. And so when you're a righteous person and you want what God wants, guess what's going to happen? Amazing things are going to happen. So therefore, you see, whatever circumstance we're in, James wants us to know that our circumstance is not, is not putting us in a situation where we're obligated to pray. Whatever circumstance we're in in life is an opportunity to pray. So what we want to do is we want to be nature of God. The more that I will character and nature of God, because the more that I know the character and nature of God, the more that I will become righteous and be right with God, and the more powerful my prayer will become because I will begin to pray the things that God wants. Yes. See, all of this makes perfect sense if you just keep it together. But when people start taking the verses and pulling it out and going, here's this verse and that verse, you can get really tangled up. So you see, we have assurance in our prayer lives because of the gospel. The gospel gives us assurance that when we pray, God hears. He listens. And not only does he listen, the gospel tells us that he cares. And not only that he cares, the gospel tells us that he cares so much that he's more invested in what needs to happen happening than we could ever dream of being. Because we didn't give our life. But he did. You see, the gospel is where all of this assurance and this, this, this deep prayer life comes from. So what happens is, think of it this way. We experience the presence of our Father in any of our life circumstances because there was a circumstance when the presence of the Father was not experienced. Just think about it for a minute. When was the presence of the Father not experienced? When the sky went black and the earth began to quake. And someone hung dying on a cross with the weight of the sin of the world bearing down upon him. While his father turned his back. And because he did not experience the presence of the Father. In other words, because the Father didn't bail him out. 
and get him off the cross. We now can experience the presence of the Father in any and every situation, in any and every circumstance. See? What did Jesus do on the cross? I mean, what, what specifically happened? Was it not that Jesus on the cross removed every obstacle between us and God? Yes. And so if every obstacle between us and God has been removed, then we can have total assurance and total freedom that we can come to God at any time, in any situation, any circumstance. Because all the obstacles have been removed. Not because of us. You see, the, the, the availability of God in prayer has nothing to do with me. God's not more available when I act right. God's available to me all the time because Jesus acted perfect. And just one other thing. Notice that when the person who is sick calls for the elders to come, and the elders come and they anoint his or her head with oil, which we have done many times. And as I thought through this this week, I thought about so many of you who have called for us to come and we've come to you and we've prayed for you and some of you are here and some of you were there when we came and prayed for your spouse and they're not here anymore. But notice what the Bible says. You call for the elders and they come and Anoint your head with oil. What? In the name of the Lord. You know why? So that we're all sure of who's doing the healing. No elders doing any healing. The Lord is the one who does the healing. And so we pray in faith that God will do what God knows needs to be done. What God knows is best. What is in God's perfect, sovereign plan. And then we come to verse 19. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now think of everything that we've said this morning. Why does James end with these two verses? What is James saying to us this morning? 
He's saying you need to understand the importance of prayer in all situations, good and bad and everything in between. And you need to understand the importance of community, the importance of family, the importance of it's so important that if you can't get to the body, call for a representation of the body to come to you because community is that critical. And so if someone wanders, go get them. Now, he's saying, look out for each other. Pay attention. Pay attention to what's going on. Watch. Be vigilant if someone goes missing. Find out what's happening. See, God is going to keep those that are His to the end. Remember Jesus said, I know my sheep, they hear my, my voice. Nothing can take them out of the palm of my hand. Nothing. So that includes you can't wander out of the palm of His hand. It's impossible. But you can wander. You can wander. And so God's going to keep those that are His till the end. But how is He going to do that? Other believers. That's how He's going to do that. See, the point of the book of James is not just to show us how to live. That's part of it. But the point of the book of James has taught us to How to help each other live. Yes. Look. Brethren, if anyone, underline the word anyone in verse 19 in your Bible. Now, if your neighbor didn't underline, then you underline in their Bible for them. It's very important. Thank you. Then it says, among you wanders from the truth and someone. Now underline the word someone. All right, let's have some participation time. Raise your hand if you're an anyone. Raise your hand if you're a someone. Aha! So I wonder what this is teaching us. Anyone can wander. Which means if you raise your hand when I said if you're in anyone, that means you're acknowledging that you can wander. Amen? That's right. And when one of God's sheep wanders, God's going to use someone. He doesn't have to, but he chooses to. That's his plan. That's how he does this. Anyone can wander and he's going to use someone. So if we have the opportunity to be used by God in this way, why wouldn't we all be doing this? What is it? Let's pull all this together. What is it that stops you from pursuing a wanderer?
people who don't pursue wanderers don't think they're weak. People who think they're strong get frustrated with wanderers and don't pursue them. You know who sympathizes with weak people? Anybody's. Yeah. See, anybody who knows their propensity to wander feels compassion for those who wander. And people who are judgmental and hard-hearted to those who wander, it's because they don't think they'll wander. They're wrong. When anyone wanders. Anyone. What really got me thinking about this a few weeks ago was this passage in Psalm 126. It's really just been the means by which I've understood this whole thing. And for weeks I've thought this through. The Bible says, He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. It's a fascinating verse to meditate on. Goes forth weeping. With this precious seed. Weeping. Connected to weakness. But you see, those who are connected to weakness bear fruit. So in Luke chapter 15, let me just read a text to you, okay? Here's what the Bible says. Jesus is talking to the tax collectors and the sinners. They drew near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes come complaining, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now watch what Jesus says. So Jesus spoke to them. Who? The Pharisees. And he said, What man of you, having a hundred sheep? I wonder how many times you've sung a song about this passage and have no idea what this is saying. Jesus said to the Pharisees, How many of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. And then Jesus says the famous statement, There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents weakness than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. So who is Jesus talking to? The Pharisees. Who are the 99? The Pharisees. See, Jesus isn't saying that the one is more important than the 99. Jesus is saying that the one is different than the 99. 
The 99 are the Pharisees. The one is the sinner, the tax collector, the weak, the dependent. You see, to be human is to be prone to wonder. And to be Christian is to care. We're all prone to wonder. Which is why we should care when those around us may wonder. Because when anyone wanders, God's going to get them. And how is he going to get them? Somebody. Now listen to me. Pay attention. Then we'll be done. If God's going to get the wandering sheep with somebody, then what does that mean if you sit back in pride and don't go after them? God's going to use somebody else. And you're going to miss your opportunity. Because he's going to get his sheep. And he's going to use somebody to get them. And that somebody is going to be somebody who understands that they're weak. And that they're dependent. And so therefore they're going to experience the power of God in their troubles. They're going to be a person of prayer. And when they pray, it's going to avail much.